people don't like hellfire and brimstone preachers about as much as they don't like doctors who will tell them they've got cancer. Yet both are equally necessary if the cure is to be applied and greatly appreciated, as we'll see next, here on Graceful Truth. Hi there and welcome. This is Graceful Truth, the ministry of Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City with our teacher and pastor, Pastor Steve Converse. Our time together today takes us back to the book of Romans. You know, everybody wants love and good times when it comes to sermons and preaching. Yet in order to really understand the depths of God's love, you have to understand the love that is applied to the rescue that you and I desperately need from His wrath. It all fits, and it is love when we talk about wrath, if we use it properly. Here's Pastor Steve Converse with the details in Romans today. You can turn over in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. We're going to continue our study through the book of Romans. Almost said the gospel of Romans. (laughs) Yeah, it kind of is, isn't it? Romans chapter 1, I just want to read our verse for us and then we'll look into the message. It says, Romans chapter 1 verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Probably one of the most famous sermons ever preached in our land was a sermon by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It was preached in Enfield, Connecticut on July 8th, 1741. And if you look down over history, God has used that sermon like he has used few others. Um, When we look at our modern-day society and even the churches today, you can honestly say that the concept of God's wrath is out of sync. It's definitely out of mind with our modern view of Christianity. Uh, Even many who claim to be evangelical believers in Christ object to and even minimize at times uh, the mention of God's wrath. Uh, They may also say that they believe it because it's in the Bible, but they're almost embarrassed to mention it. When's the last time you heard a message on God's wrath, God's anger? I've heard a lot of Christians over the years say, well, I believe in a God of love, not a God of wrath. Well, you can believe in whatever you want. That doesn't change who God is. A lot of times that's caused by people ignorantly implying that the God of the Old Testament was a God of wrath. He was angry. He was upset. But in the New Testament, well, we're under God's grace and he's kind of mellowed out to be this nice old guy that's just full of love. I've even had people tell me at times when you're exhorting them or explaining certain principles to them, they don't want to hear it. 
they say that Jesus was always loving. He was never judgmental. And I, I just want to scream and pull my hair out if I had any and say, haven't you ever read the New Testament? Haven't you ever read the words of Christ? A lot of the seeker movement, the seeker churches have kind of created a scenario where they want to draw huge crowds. And the reason they want to do that is basically to support their ministries. And I'm not saying they're, they have ill intentions in doing that. And I wouldn't call them of the heretical nature that they're just after your money. I think they want a big crowd so they can share the gospel with people. That's their, their motivating factor. But they bring people in by principles like this. They never want to mention the word sin because it's offensive to people. They never want to talk about judgment. They never want to talk about the blood of Christ or the sacrificial sacrifice of Christ. Instead, they want to focus on more positive aspects of the gospel. God loves you. God has a wonderful plan for your life. He offers you abundant life full of peace, joy, and love. He will help you with your problems. He's a here. He's a God who meets your needs. He wants you to be happy. Won't you invite him into your heart? This loving God. But there's no mention of the holiness of God who is in every way justified in his wrath against sinners. In a lot of ways, we've bought into the old liberal message that says a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of Christ without a cross. When the Apostle Paul begins to expound the gospel that he proclaimed, he doesn't lead off with the love of God. He just doesn't. In verses 16 to 17, he talks about not being ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You don't mention the love of God there. I think sometimes we focus too much on God's love and not enough on his holiness. Not enough on the fact that God does have anger. God does have wrath. That's what we're going to study today. We want you to understand the wrath of God from a biblical perspective. When he even goes further to bring up the gospel, he doesn't even mention God's love, but he mentions God's wrath. A lot of modern critics would say, Paul, you're, you're not going to win any converts by doing this. This isn't the Dale Carnegie way that we've learned how to win friends and influence people. Paul, you need to lighten up a little bit. Maybe once you get people kind of in Christ, then you can talk about God's wrath. But when you're trying to win people to Christ, we don't want to mention the wrath or the anger of God. That's the opposite of what we want to do. We want to share with them God's love. That's what these critics say. But Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, in verse 18 begins to expound on this gospel that he just talked about in verses 16 and 17. 
You notice it starts with the word for. He wants us to understand this gospel, why it is good news. He wants to understand why he's not ashamed of it. Why it has such power to everyone who believes to convert the soul. And so he writes in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. If we're going to understand why we need God's power in the gospel and why we need his very righteousness given to us, imputed to our account, then we need to understand that his wrath is focused against our sin. I mean, think about it. If we're not such bad people, if we just have you know, some goodness in us and we just kind of, kind of pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and try a little harder to live a holy life and then God will accept us, warts and all. If we have enough good deeds to earn points to get into heaven one day, then why are we even here? Why do we need God's righteousness? And why did God, through Christ, need to bear God's wrath on the cross on our behalf. Why did that even have to happen? But see, if we're ungodly people and we're unrighteous in God's sight, which I would say the Bible calls us clearly out on this, if we have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness and as a result we're under God's wrath, His just wrath, then we desperately need God's saving power through the gospel. That's why Paul can say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation. That implies we need to be saved from something. What do we need to be saved from? We need to be saved from our sin. Our sin is an offense to God. And the sin is not just something we do, it's literally who we are. So it's very important to understand that there's a need for this salvation because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God the last time I checked what the Word of God says. Well, as he begins this lengthy section, this section of of Romans basically is going to run from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. He's talking about the same subject. He's talking about the sinfulness of the human race. And he wants us to know without a doubt that we are sinful. At first he gives kind of a general indictment here in verses 23 to 32. After he kind of talks about the wrath of God. Maybe more these sins that are mentioned there in verses 23 to 32 of chapter 1 may be more prevalent among the Gentile people of his day. But then in verse 1 through 16 of chapter 2, he moves on and he basically indicts those who think that they're moral enough to commend themselves to God. So he hits sins basically first right out of the gate about probably the Gentiles are participating in. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 to 16, he says, now if you think that just because you don't do those things, you're in the clear, you're not. Don't think you're moral enough to commend yourself to God. And then in verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 18, 217 through 318, Paul turns on the Jews who obviously pride themselves on having the law. And showing how they are guilty before God. 
See, they were wearing their Judaism like a, a cloak of righteousness. And Paul was telling them, no, that's not going to work. <laughs> that's the, the whole idea of religion. Religion cloaks you in, in good deeds and things on the outward that make you look religious. Sometimes you go to a church and you'll see the, the pastor or the priest up there in his royal gown and garb and all this stuff. I mean, why do you think they do that? Set themselves apart. Because they're obviously more godly than anyone else. That's why they're up there and we're down here. That's the thinking. That's what world religion does. It sets a divide between those who are righteous and those who aren't. The only problem is, is they fail to understand that we're all unrighteous. None of us has done good, not one. And so Paul turns on those Jews of his day and he talks about their pride having the law and that they're also guilty before God. And then in, finally there in, in chapter 3, verses 9 to 20, he sums up by showing that the entire human race is guilty before God justly. And only at one point in verses 21 and 26 of chapter 3 does he come back and pick up the theme of verse 17 of chapter 1. That the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ is available to sinners through faith alone. See, in our text, Paul is showing why God is justified to inflict his wrath on the sinful human race. And in turn, what does that do? That shows us our need of the gospel. You can sum up the whole message, really, of the gospel if you just read verses 18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal Power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since, well, look at this, the creation of the world in the things that have been made. They are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give, him, give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images representing mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. That explains the situation that we're in. And just as much as Paul wanted the Romans to understand what the gospel message was all about, he also wanted them to know why the gospel message was necessary. Sometimes we get that reversed. Sometimes we forget to tell people why the gospel message is necessary, and we just kind of forge right ahead and tell them what the gospel message is. And so Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote about the wrath of God. He wrote about the anger of God. It's God's wrath against sin that forms the hub around which this last half of chapter 1 revolves. 
Now, when you preach a message about God's wrath, about God's anger, that's not going to be a popular thing. I understand that. You may have come here today thinking you need a shot in the arm. Hey, give me something to get me through the next week. You know, I don't know if this is going to do it or not for you. It depends where your mind is. But if you're looking for a little happy message to kind of just kind of help you float through the rest of the week, this is probably not going to be it. Now, I tell you that right up front, not so you just check out and fall asleep, but I want to share this with you, that I think what we're going to share here this morning is far more important than anything that you could ever hear that will just titillate your ears and make you feel good about yourself. Man has tried his best to reduce God to some dim-witted, doting old grandfather type of figure up in heaven. And basically all he does is he winks at our sins, our flaws, and all he does is, is love on everybody. That's what we've been kind of taught in most churches today. The idea of a wrathful God goes against any wishful thinking of a fallen human nature. And it's even, I would say, a stumbling block to a lot of Christians, people that know Christ. When you start talking about the wrath of God, it can cause them to go, wait a minute, wait a minute, I thought God was loving, I thought God was a God of love. A lot of contemporary evangelism talks only about the abundant life in Christ, the joy, the blessings of salvation, the peace that we have with God that faith in Christ brings. All those things are true. I'm not here to discount those things. All of those benefits do result from true faith, but they're not the whole picture of God's plan of salvation, beloved. See, the truth that runs parallel, the truth of God's judgment against sin and those who participate in it must also be heard. See, for Paul, there is fear, literal fear of eternal condemnation. That was his motivation that he offered to people for coming to Christ. You say, you mean you scare people into the kingdom? Well, there may be some of that. That's not a bad tactic to take. The first pressure he applied to all evil men was he wanted them to understand the wrath of God, the anger of God. He was determined that they understand the reality of being under God's wrath because of their own sin. Then once they understood that, then he could come alongside and say, now I want you to know that God has provided a way out. That approach makes both logical sense and theological sense. You cannot appreciate the wonder of God's grace until you know about the perfect demands of God's law. You cannot appreciate the fullness of God's love until you know something about the fierceness of God's anger and wrath against sin and against all who fail to perfectly obey the law. You cannot appreciate God's forgiveness until you know about the eternal consequences of the sins that require a penalty and the need for forgiveness in the first place. I mean, think of it this way. If I told you that there was a cure that was just discovered for a very deadly, fatal disease, if I told you that today, you'd probably say, well, that was nice. That's nice to hear. Hopefully that helps some people. 
But if I followed that up and said, and by the way, you have that disease. All of a sudden, your interest peaks, doesn't it? Well, where can I get this cure? All of a sudden, you're thinking, well, how did they find this cure? You know, I, I need this cure. I don't want to die. Immediately, your interest peaks because you have a need for that antidote or that medication. One of the greatest tragedies, I believe, in modern-day Christianity and much evangelism that goes on today is the failure to preach and teach the wrath of God and the condemnation that results upon all with unforgiven sin. We just kind of leave that out. It's uncomfortable. I'll admit it. I mean, you know, when I'm talking to somebody at Starbucks or something, I I don't really want to open up a conversation with them, trying to evangelize them, saying, do you know that you're under the wrath of God? That would probably get weird looks from people. But that's what they need to hear. That's exactly what they need to hear. We've kind of taken this message and we cut it down into this sentimental gospel. And it falls way short of the gospel that Jesus in the gospels and also that Paul throughout the book of Romans and his other epistles preached. That's why our churches are such disarray and a mess. Because it's filled with people who came to Jesus, quote, because they had a little quiver in their liver and somebody told them that Jesus would make it go away. And they said, yes, sign me up. They walked the aisle, they prayed the prayer, they did whatever you do. They never thought that their lives were an offense to God. They never understood that their sin piqued the wrath of God against them. They were under the just judgment of God. They never understood that. They just heard that God has a wonderful plan for their life and that Jesus loves them and won't you invite him into your heart? Sure, why not? Why wouldn't you do that? And then they're taken within the folds of the church, probably not even converted. They're taken within the folds of the church and they're affirmed in their faith and they're taught all the Christianese that they need to learn. But in reality, their life hasn't changed at all. They've just become religious They just go to church once a week. One thing that made an impact on me in this missions trip, when you talk to some of these pastors, and they literally left a life, a family, everything, and committed to Christ. I mean, you can see there's a change. There's something different. Their priorities are different. Their lifestyle's different. I mean, the kids in the the orphanage over there, they basically have, I think, a half hour, hour of prayer and worship every day. Every day. It's just amazing to me. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, if we can pull that off on a Sunday morning, it'd be good without being distracted. If we could come here somehow on a Sunday morning without thinking about how the Giants are doing or the 49ers or whatever's coming up next on your agenda and just focus for maybe an hour and a half on God's Word and fellowship and and asking the Spirit to work through us and be honest and transparent enough to look at our own heart first before we point our fingers at somebody else. Well, thank you for spending time with us here today on Graceful Truth, the ministry of Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. It's our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal His grace to your hearts through the teaching of His Word each week. And we trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. 
If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. And if you would like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. Our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We meet at 2225 Euclid Avenue here in Redwood City. Directions are on our website, gracefultruth.org, or again, simply call 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. And again, we'd love to have you join us for worship. Simply call for directions or go to our website, gracefultruth.org. While you're at our website, make sure to check out the resource materials available from us here at Graceful Truth, including past programs of Graceful Truth that you can download for free. Gracefultruth.org is where to go. If you're writing to us, our address is 2225 Euclid Avenue. That's 2225 Euclid Avenue. We're here in Redwood City. The zip code is 94061. And again, our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We thank you for spending time with us today and trust we'll see you next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse.